Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. Trust you're doing well. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, honored to have you. Uh, my name is Jason Williams. I have the, the honor of serving as a lead pastor here. And um, if you have time after the service, I would love to get to meet you and hear how God led you and your family to our church. And so uh, if you're looking for a church home, I'm a little biased, but this is a great church. Um, we don't have it all together, right, folks? We don't have it all together. This is not um, a place just to coast through life because we have it together, but this is a place to bring our brokenness, um, all of our, um, all of our uh, sin and areas of life that need to be healed and all of our questions and our doubts and our fears uh, that we might encounter God together. And so if you're visiting with us um, and, and you don't have a church home, I, I would pray for you that you might consider making this your church home. Um, we're going to be in, we're going to start in the book of Matthew this morning and we're going to be all over the New Testament. Fair warning, okay? Uh, all the scriptures are going to be um, in the sermon notes in uh, the seat back in front of you or if you're on the front row behind you, you may have to turn around and grab one. Um, they're also fill in the blanks today. I know we've got some fill in the blank fans and you like to fill in the blanks, so we've got some for you today. Um, before we get started though, I want to just take a moment to um, bring some awareness to one of our team ministries here at the church that um, much like our tech team rarely gets acknowledged, yet almost everybody in the room has been blessed because of the service of our hospitality team. And so I want to take a minute just to recognize, first of all, um, Faith and Philip, who have been serving so faithfully in this ministry, leading this ministry. Faith has been leading this ministry and doing a fantastic job. Um, Faith has come to the staff and said, hey, it's time to pass the baton. And so um, Faith is going to pass the baton to uh, Beverly Dietz. You may recognize Beverly and Bob Dietz. He rotates in with one of our drummers, and Beverly's going to be taking the lead on the hospitality team. Um, Faith and Philip aren't going anywhere. Matter of fact, they're serving in hospitality today. Um, just stepping down from that leadership role. And so I wanted to, first of all, say thank you to job well done to Faith and Philip. And if you know who they are, be sure and thank them today for all their work. Look at that. Yep. And, uh, and also wanted to welcome in our new leader, uh, Beverly, as she takes the lead there. Um, and if you're looking for a place to serve and you enjoy behind the scenes serving, uh, this is the crew that puts out all of our coffee and our uh, cucumber infused water and all the little candies in the back they get all that in order every Sunday and so you can let us know you want to be um, considered for that team or be on that team and we'll be glad to get you connected to Beverly so I um, wanted, wanted to share that with you all right so we are in week two in our sermon series uh, the sermon series title is the everyday gospel um, last week spent some time explaining that title and where it came from and how we got it and so this week I'm not going to do all that um, but I will explain the sermon series. So here's what we're doing during this sermon series entitled The Everyday Gospel. We were looking at how the theology of the gospel applies in everyday life. So what do we mean by the gospel? What we mean is this, that the creator of the universe, the king of kings, at just the right moment in time, he unzips the fabric of time and steps into the human story. We know him as Jesus of Nazareth. He lives a perfect life among us, he dies sacrificially, resurrects from the grave victoriously, and ascends back to his rightful place on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And now we await his return. So when I say the gospel, I'm talking about that, that good news that Jesus came to earth to die for sinners like us, that we might have forgiveness and eternal life in him. Now, what we're doing, though, is we're looking at how that gospel theology impacts 
everyday life. What does that truth have to do with my role as a father and a husband and a coworker and a friend and a boss and an employee and a church member? And so we're going to walk through everyday examples of how that gospel theology plays out in everyday life. Now, uh, we started last week laying a foundation that who we are in Christ is first founded in what we, who we are, not in what we do. So unlike the world around us in the church, we're not defined by what we do, what we achieve, and how well we perform. We are defined by our trust in Jesus, and that changes who we are. And we talked about being as the foundation for our doing, right? Because we don't want to just be doers who get busy doing all these things to appease God because we know that will never work. So, right, we trust in the work that Jesus has done for us and that changes who we are. This week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the gospel in sanctification. I know that's a big word. We're actually going to spend some time defining that word today so that hopefully all of us have a grasp of what that word means. But what we're talking about is, okay, so I know how the gospel impacts my life at the moment of salvation, but how does it impact my life after that moment? What bearing does the fact that Jesus died on the cross have on my life as now as a Christian, as a believer? And so as we talked last week about being Christians, today we're going to begin talking about the things that we now do. I want to lay out for you kind of a paradigm um, and the dangers of being on either end of this spectrum. So if we hear that, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from works. It is God's doing, right? And therefore, we have no room to boast, right? And we hear that, and we land in that camp and say, I'm saved by grace through faith. Nothing I do can change my eternal position. Then I'm just going to coast through life. I'm not going to give any effort because I wasn't saved by effort. So why should I give any effort? Jesus died for all my sins. God's sovereignty already knows all my sins. So I'm just going to coast. And what we get over here on this end of the spectrum is what we call licentiousness or even um, anti-law thinking or antinomianism. This idea that since Jesus did all the work and I don't want to work because he did all the work, I'm just going to coast through my Christian existence. However, that pendulum swings, doesn't it? It comes way back over here, maybe you grew up in a church setting or were taught that God is pleased with you because of your good works. And so everything for you is about good works. It's what you do. You find your identity in what you do, and you want to make sure the list is checked off. This is where we find our Pharisees, those who are engulfed in legalism. So the answer isn't found in one extreme or the other, but it's somewhere here in the middle. And what we're going to find in the gospel is that it's not either or, but it's a both and. We're going to start today looking at a parable that Jesus taught in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus teaches this parable, and he says, you know what, the response of human beings to the gospel is a lot like a farmer who sows seeds, and he throws these seeds out, and the seeds land on various different types of soil, rocks, and some land among the weeds, but he says, Here's how you know a person has really heard the gospel and believed it. Their heart will be like good soil. It'll be a seed that lands. It is embraced by this good soil. And you know it's good soil because eventually it will produce a plant. And not only will it produce a plant, but eventually that plant will produce fruit. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 23. As for what was sown on good soil, 
This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So what Jesus is saying is that, in generally, a person who has responded to the gospel in genuine faith, you'll know it because their life will begin to produce good fruit. And I love that he said some 100, some 60, some 30, because what he doesn't want us to do is to start measuring ourselves against one another. I see your good deeds, so I've got to up my good deeds to match your good deeds. What he's saying is not that we'll all have the same amount of good deeds or good works coming out of our life, but when the seed of the gospel lands on good soil, you'll know it because it will begin to produce fruit. And so what Jesus would say is, yeah, there's going to be some action that comes out of your life if your faith is genuine. Now, we're going to go to James next, James chapter 2. Oftentimes, um, the Apostle Paul and James are kind of put up against one another because Paul emphasizes in the gospel that we're saved by grace through faith and not through works. That's Paul's bell that he's always ringing. But James, on the other hand, would say, whoa, 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 let's tap the brakes. Let's make sure we not forget, though, what Jesus taught, that good works will accompany genuine faith. So look at what he says in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? person who's over on one end of the spectrum, faith, but there's no works. Can that faith save him? That's the question. Not does he have faith, but can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James is going to draw a distinction between two different types of faith. Faith that is dead versus faith that is alive. Very similar to what Jesus said. right When he compared the different types of soils. We know the good soil because it's alive and it produces fruit. Now look at what James says next. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what James is saying is there's there's two different perspectives of faith or two different types of faith. Faith that's alive, like Jesus said, it produces good fruit. What does that mean? It means that in a very practical sense, when you see your brother or sister in Christ and they are in need, you're going you're gonna to seek to fill those needs. You're going to react to that. Right? You're going to love them well because you've been loved well. You're going to be generous to people around you because God's been generous to you. That's going to come out of your life if faith is alive. However, there's also a faith that is dead. And guess what? Even the demons have that kind of faith. And faith that is dead says, I believe God is real, but the reaction to God being real is what? Shuddering. And fear. And so Jesus says it this way. There are different types of soils. James says it this way. There's there's faith that's alive and faith that's dead. But the main point James is making is what? We can't separate our faith from good works. We're not saved by our good works. 
We're saved by faith, but faith that is alive, saving faith, remember he said, can this kind of faith save him, will produce in us good works. Now what we're going to do for the remainder of this sermon series is we're going to look at those good works. What does that mean to produce good works in marriage and parenting and friendship and work and all the arenas of every day life? But keep in mind, all of this is founded on a foundation that we are saved by grace through faith. That changes who we are. And because it changes who we are, it therefore changes what we do, how we act, how we interact with the world and with people around us. Now, here's the primary question or questions that we're after today. If you're one of these people who struggles to see the connection between James and Paul, we're asking the question, are James and Paul preaching the same gospel? And the greater question that we're after today is this, is how is the gospel good news in my sanctification? So our next stop is going to be in Ephesians 4. I want you to see something with me today that will connect with what we saw last week. Last week, we talked about how you and I, the essence of who we are is that we were created in God's image. It's who we are. Now look at what we read in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 20. The Apostle Paul is writing the Christian church in Ephesus. He's addressing believers. He says in verse 20, That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So he's saying, hey, I'm approaching you, assuming that you've heard the gospel and you've responded to it in faith. I'm treating you like Christians. I'm writing to you as fellow believers. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, last week we talked about our role as image bearers from two perspectives. One was a general sense. As a human being, you are an image bearer, and you can't change that. You were created in the image of God. Specifically, what we mean by that is you have a will, right? Nothing else in creation has a will. You're the only thing created by God that reflects that part of who he is. You have a will, and you have character. Nothing else in creation has character. The oak tree does not have a will, right? Just follows the path of least resistance and the genetic makeup and does its thing. The labadoodle does not have character. Personality, but not character. Only you as a human being have those things. So even if you're not a Christian, you're still a human being. And so in a general sense, you reflect the image of God in that way. You follow me? Now, as Christians, though, we, in a very specific sense, are called to emulate who God is and reflect his image in our will and our character, which means what? Both our will and our character are going to have to be worked on, right? You follow me? And look at what Paul just said in Ephesians 4. He says, listen, if you've heard the gospel, if you learned about Christ this way, then here's what's going to be happening in your life. There's going to be a process taking place where you're taking off the old you and your mind is being renewed and you're putting on the new you. And look at where he finishes. He says this. You're going to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. That should ring a bell for us. Created in God's likeness. So now in Christ, 
right? I'm not just generally reflecting who God is because I have a will and a character. I'm being re-imaged in the likeness of Christ. Where my will was bent towards selfishness, God is bending it back in line with his will. Where my character was flawed and marred with sin and selfishness, right? God has cleaned that up. He's purified that. He's aligning my character with his. I'm being recreated in the image of Christ. Now, here's here's the thing. If you've been a Christian for over 20 years, would you raise your hand and just keep it up? Okay. All right. The majority of the room, you can put your hands down. Now, I'm wondering, out of those of you who have been Christians for over 20 years, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands this time, are more like Jesus today than you were on day one? Probably every hand would go back up, right? Now, but here's the follow-up question. How many of you are exactly like Jesus? Go ahead. Raise your hands. Where are you? Yeah, I saw that. Funny guy. But nobody, why? We would all say... I'm more like him than I was on day one, but nobody would say I'm exactly like him, which would then say, say what? I'm in the middle of a process, right? I'm in the middle of a process. I'm more like him, but not yet exactly like him. I am being recreated in the image of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul is mainly talking about the resurrection, but he begins with these two verses. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, Christians, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? By which you are being saved. What does that mean? Now, here in modern-day American Christianity, we tend to be more event-driven in our Christianity rather than process-driven, right? So we mark those monumental moments of the day I was saved, I walked the aisle, or I prayed with my mom and dad in my bedroom. We mark these events in our life. We celebrate, and rightly so, these events in our life. But we fail to see the celebration of the process that begins at the moment that event takes place. So the gospel is not just a door through which I walk through and then I'm good to go. It is the first step in a lifelong journey and, here's the word, process of being transformed into the image of Christ. It is by which I am being saved. And so what do we mean? Process of being transformed into the image of Jesus. This is sanctification. That's what we mean by that word. So now when you hear sanctification, don't get tripped up because it's this big, lofty, theological word with a lot of syllables. Now you know, sanctification, process. This is what Paul meant in Philippians 1.6 when he said, you remember what he said in Philippians 1.6? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to do what? Bring it to completion. When? Not today, but on that day of Jesus' glorious return. And in between the day I first believe and the day of Christ's return, I am in a process of being transformed in the image of Christ. That means then the good news of the gospel is good news in justification 
and in sanctification. The gospel is good news in justification, our salvation, and in sanctification. That's what we're going to talk about now more specifically. If you're taking notes, the gospel is good news in justification and sanctification. Now, I know I'm the one who decides which words to underline and that you have to write down if you're writing them, and you're writing down a big word, sanctification, okay? I I did that on purpose. We're going to lay a lot of groundwork today to understand what that word means, and so I think it's important for us to write it down and to remember, lest we forget. The gospel is good news in justification. We get that, right? For sinners, people who are struggling, we get that it's good news, but it's also good good news for those of us who are Christians, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 now. We're going to begin talking specifically about how the gospel is good news to Christians. You, you tracking with me? We know why it's good news to those who don't know God. But why is the gospel good news to Christians? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, once again, he's writing a Christian church. And look at what he says to the Christians. Starting in verse 14. The love of Christ, pause, that phrase Paul's referring to is essentially the gospel, right? For God so loved the world, he did what? Sent his son to die for us, that those who would believe in him might have eternal life. He's referring to the gospel. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake was raised. Paul is talking to Christians. Christians, let us not forget. The way we became Christians, we realized that Jesus died once and for all for everybody. So those of us who have trusted in him, who have been saved by that truth, should therefore begin to live for him. But look at where he begins. For the love of Christ controls us. I'm going to do a little Greek lesson here. I can tell you brought, you brought your Greek learning glasses and you're ready to go to Greek class here. This is going to be so exciting. Now, depending on what translation you're reading from, you read the love of Christ controls us or compels us or constrains us. So what do we mean by, what does God mean by this word? It's the Greek word syneko, okay? Syneko, kind of like a syneko slithering in the grasso. Um, but the word means... The word means to hold together. And from this Greek word, syneko, we get three word pictures to help us understand what God means that the love of Christ controls us or compels us. The first word image is is, um, the idea of a potter who has a lump of clay. And it's 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 that action of pressing clay together so that all the molecules are bonded together and it begins to take shape. It's that process where the potter decides this is going to be um, a vase and he or she begins to form this clay roughly into the size of a vase and it takes pressure pushing and squeezing and holding and not dropping this piece of clay to begin to form it into what it is to be. That's helpful isn't it? That's Seneca, the love of Christ, holds us and molds us. It also could be translated or understood in the sense of the boundaries of a ship canal. Very clear boundaries, maybe some rubber bumpers to protect the ships. 
It allows the ship to move left and right, but it continues to keep the, sh- the ship in boundaries that it might continue traveling down the main path. That's the, that's the word seneco. It holds it in. It keeps it guided down its journey. There's a third understanding of this word, and this one resounded more with me than, than any other. Um, it's the idea, and if you've been around livestock, cattle, you understand the chute, the squeeze chute, right? And so this word is like the idea of a squeeze chute. When a cow steps into the squeeze chute, it squeezes down on this cow that whoever is there squeezing the chute can then administer medication, right? Vaccination, pesticides, get rid of ticks and flies and all those kinds of things. Now, really important, important point here. I've run a lot of cattle through a lot of chutes. I have yet to see a cow walk up to a chute with excitement about going in. That's what the prod is for. That's what the squeeze gate is for. You've got to push and force this cow into the chute. I have yet to see a cow come out of the chute, pause for a minute, look over his or her shoulder, and smile and say, thank you for that, and then go on about their merry way. No, as soon as the gate is open, they're running for their life. Why? Because the cow does not know that the chute is for its good. That this pressure I'm feeling, even the pain that I'm feeling, it's for my good. And the cow will never know that it was for it's good, right? But from the rancher's perspective, this is absolutely for your good, for your health, for your long life, that I take care of you because I love you and care for you. I'm gonna squeeze you for a moment that I might administer the necessary healing in your life. Now, all of this is implied by this word, seneco. The love of Christ does this to us, the gospel. It holds us tightly keeps us within the boundaries, moving down the path God has for us. Oftentimes, it feels painful, and it's scary. But because we know Christ, we know the intentions of he who squeezes us, and we know it's for our good. Think about the things in your life that God has given you to keep you within those boundaries and to mold you. We have the Bible, God's word, framed by the gospel. God created all things. At just the right time, he steps into the world. He's born in a manger, lives a perfect life, dies sacrificially, resurrects victoriously, and now the church awaits his return. That's the framework of your Bible. The gospel is embedded in this, and God has given you his word to mold you, to squeeze you, and to shape you, and to keep you within the boundaries. And, And you may read things in here. Actually, I'll take that phrase back. You will read things in here that don't feel good. If you'll read it, that's the caveat. You have to read it, but you're going to read things in here that don't feel good. What is that not feeling good? Oh, I didn't like that. That's the pressure of God's hands molding you and shaping you. For those who are in Christ, God has given you his Holy Spirit. Like the boundaries on the canal, right? Just keeping you within the boundaries, moving down the direction, the path that God has for you. We sometimes feel that pressure. We call it conviction. The Holy Spirit, does conviction feel good? No, but we in Christ know it's to our good. So our job is to respond to that conviction from the Holy Spirit. But let's not overlook the third element, biblical community, the church. God has given you the church. When we remind one another of the gospel, we sing the gospel with and to one another, we discuss the gospel in small group settings, what are we doing? We're participating in that work of God molding and shaping and 
The Old Testament says it this way, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's that pressure that you feel, that good pressure of being held by God and being molded by God. Molded into what? The image of Jesus. You follow me? The image of Jesus. And so Paul would say the gospel is good news in sanctification because through the gospel, God holds us and molds us into the image of Jesus. God holds us and molds us to become more like Jesus. That's good news. That's why you're more like him today than you were when you first began. But that's also why you're not exactly like him yet. You're in that process. Now, next thing I want to do is I'm going to go to Titus um, chapter 2, and this will be our last passage for this morning, Titus chapter 2. Again, the Apostle Paul, the guy who's known for saved by grace through faith and don't trust in your good works. Look at what he's going to say here to a young pastor named Titus in chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He's talking about the gospel. Right? The grace of God has appeared. Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation for everybody. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now this passage is framed with the gospel. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Now we're waiting for his reappearance, his glorious reappearance. All who have been redeemed and purified by him. There's a really key word I want to point out here. The key word is this. In most translations, it's the word training. So what Paul just said to a young pastor named Titus is, Titus, don't forget that the gospel trains you. It instructs you. Now think about that. If the gospel instructs us, then that means there is still learning to be had. Follow me? Which means I never get to a place where I can go, you know what, I've learned Everything there is to learn, I'm ready to set this aside now and just coast as a Christian. Why? Because I have not fully learned everything that I need to learn yet. So who's going to teach me? Paul says to a young pastor named Titus, it's the gospel that instructs you. The gospel that teaches you what? What is the gospel teaching us? To renounce, listen to this description, To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That sounds like character to me. Does that sound like character to you? So how is my character becoming more like Jesus? Paul says the gospel teaches you and instructs you to renounce. So that means what? I don't always know what I need to renounce. Listen, church, I don't always know. I don't intuitively always know what is sin, what is evil, what is to be renounced. I need to be taught. I can't just go with my gut feeling. I have to be instructed on what I need to renounce. And I also need to be instructed on what? 
what it looks like to live self-controlled, upright, and godly living. The gospel has to teach me these things. It's part of the, listen, process. I don't care if you've been a Christian for over 20 years. You don't know yet fully what you need to know. There's still need to open this glorious book and read it. You tracking with me? So the gospel teaches and instructs us. I want to point out two more things. Often, and I would say almost always, the gospel is going to run counterintuitive 180 degrees from the culture around us. So like we talked about last week, the culture around us says you are defined by what you do and how well you perform at what you do, right? The gospel says, no, 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 you're not defined by what you do. You're defined by what you believe and who you are. That's what defines you, right? So it's different from the culture around us. Well, did you notice this progression here for Paul? He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness, training us to what? Pursue godliness in this present age. It's not the other way around. We don't allow this present age to define for us what ungodliness is and what godliness is that we might then understand who Christ is. Paul said that's not the way it works. The gospel instructs you on what ungodliness is and what godliness is in every present age, not the other way around. You, you tracking with me? And the world we have a, that we live in, the culture we exist in as Christ followers in 2018 would say, no, 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 no. You have to view this book through modern day lenses. You have to say, well, they didn't have electricity back then, and running water back then, and so it's different now, and so then you begin to massage the truth and allow this present age to define what ungodliness and godliness is, and Paul said, that's not the way it works. If you want to be instructed, you have to allow the gospel to instruct you, and regardless of what present age you're in, the truth will be the truth for you and for your children and for your grandchildren and for every age that has come and every age that will follow, not the other way around. The gospel trains us to be more like Jesus. We need to be trained, taught, instructed. The gospel trains us to be more like Jesus. I don't fully know how to be like him, and you don't either. Now, the last thing I want to point out from this passage in Titus is at the end, as Paul reiterates the gospel, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people, that's us, for his own possession. Look at where he ends. Who are zealous for good works. I know it's a kind of a strange word, zealous. Here's what it means. It means to be, to possess a burning passion and desire for something. That's what it means to be zealous. A burning passion and desire. So you can be zealous for things that are not good, right? And you can be zealous for things that are good. But here's what Paul is saying to young Titus, and he's saying to us as Christians, the gospel stirs your affections for Jesus in such a way that it will produce good works. He's preaching the same gospel James preached. He's preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached. The gospel stirs us to be more like Jesus. I love the way that the author, um, C.S. Lewis, wraps all this up in one sentence. Listen to his words. He says, the Christian 
does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. What a great summary of all that we've talked about. The Christian doesn't buy into the lie that if I'll do more good stuff, God will love me more. But the Christian believes that because God loves me, he's going to stir me up to do good works. Being good doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian makes you good. Follow me? Now, little litmus test. What do we do with this? What do you do if you're here today and you think you're a Christian or you think you've been a Christian for over 20 years and you're thinking, well, I'm not very zealous for good works and I, I don't read the Bible and I haven't been instructed in like years since I was a kid and what do I do? First thing I would encourage you to do, take a step back. Take a step back. Let's go back to James. Let's go back to what Jesus said. Did the, did the seed of the gospel land on good soil? Okay, that's, that's something for you to answer between you and God. Did I truly respond to the gospel with genuine faith? Like faith that is alive. Like I believe it. I stake my life on it. I trust in what Jesus has done for me. Or was it something else? I was trying to appease my grandparents. I was trying to be like my buddy in school. I, I don't know. That's why it's for you to think about. Now, if you conclude, no, I genuinely trusted in Jesus when I was 8 or 14 or 20 or whenever, but now I'm not zealous for good works. Okay, so here's what I want to encourage you to think about. The cure is not to create a list of all the stuff you're going to go do this week. As soon as you do that, you jump back into legalism, and now you become a doer, and that does not lead to zeal, excitement, and passion. We were just told where that comes from. Where does it come from? Where does our zeal come from? It comes from what? the gospel. And if that's you and you're here today and you're a Christian, you're struggling. I'm just not very zealous for, for God right now. I don't feel like doing good stuff for God. I don't feel like serving. I don't feel like whatever. Like here's what I would encourage you to do as you take a step back. I want you to behold the Lamb of God once again, fresh and anew. I want you to see Jesus on the cross for you, not for them. I want you to think about how Jesus is your Savior how his sacrifice paid for your sin. I want you to revisit the gospel and stay there and allow God to stir your affections for him, that out of your affections, we might be a people for his own possession who are then zealous for good works. Through genuine faith in Jesus, the gospel holds us, molds us, instructs us, and stirs us to good works that reflect the image of Jesus to the world around us, that they may see his glory and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is what sanctification is. It's the process of being made more like him. Now, I don't know where um, this lands on you today. Um, you could be a person who's here today who raised your hand earlier and said, I've been saved for over 20 years, and all of a sudden you're like, I don't know if I should have raised my hand. I mean, I've been going to church for that long. I've considered myself a Christian that long, but I don't know if I've truly trusted in the gospel, truly believed it, like James talks about, like Jesus talks about, and like Paul talks about. Now, I'm not encouraging you uh, into, to, uh, to a doubtful questioning of your salvation. I'm just encouraging you to take a step back. Maybe that's you, and you realize, you know what? I'm not even a Christian. I've never trusted in Jesus for the first time. Listen, today is the day. Whether you're six years old or 60 years old, today is the day. In just a moment, our prayer partners will be down at the front and at the back. Would you grab one of our prayer partners? 
just say, hey, will you pray with me? You may be here today and you walked in today knowing you're not a believer, you're not a Christian. You're kicking the tires, you're, you're curious, but maybe you're just not there. And today, maybe for the first time, God opened your eyes to see and to hear the gospel for the first time, like really hear it. Now your heart is churning, okay? Like I'm gonna encourage you to do the same thing. Respond to that today. Take a step of faith towards Jesus today. If you need somebody to pray with you, again, grab a prayer partner. I'm ready to become a Christian today. For those of us who are Christians, who are in the process of sanctification, being squeezed and pressured and held and molded and guided, maybe today would just be a sweet return to the fresh good news of the gospel of Jesus. That at just the right time, the king of all kings stepped into our world. He lived a perfectly sinless life for you. He died sacrificially for you. He rose from the grave victoriously for you. And he ascended back to the right hand of the Father for you. And listen, and on one future glorious day, he shall return for you. Maybe you just need to revisit that good news again. I'm gonna pray for us and ask our worship team to come up and lead us and our prayer partners to move forward. And I'm gonna ask you to respond in whatever way God has spoken to you today. Let's pray together. Um, God, thank you for showing us today that um, the, the good news of the gospel is, is good news in our salvation and it's also good news in our sanctification, God. The good news of the gospel meets us on Monday morning as we wake up to begin our routine of going and doing and taking kids and fixing lunches and working and clocking in and clocking out. And this morning you've reminded us that in all this going and doing, the gospel is good news. We are not defined by what we do. We're defined by what we believe. God, you've reminded us this morning that when we trust in Jesus, you change who we are and you begin working in us in ways that we can't work on ourselves. God, you're molding us into the image of your son. God, in whatever way you've spoken today, would you continue that conversation now as we prepare to respond? Holy Spirit, would you guide us in whatever way you desire for us to respond to what we've heard today? pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus.